Amen. Thanks, Brian. You may be seated. Appreciate you guys being here today. I know uh, several of you have uh, relatives or family members that are sick. A lot of sickness going around, so we do need to be praying for our members that are sick uh, as well. Uh, but thank you for being here today. And we're going to start a new series today. It is simply called The Messenger and the Messiah. Now, I know a lot of times, uh, myself, other pastors included, uh, kind of pick one or maybe two weeks to really focus in on the Christmas message. And uh, as I was preparing uh, last month for kind of the, the holiday season, Christmas season, and the sermons that, we, that I wanted to, to preach on, I thought there's no way I can do this in one or two Sundays. So instead, I've chosen to do a, about a six-week series uh, based around the, the Christmas story. So I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoy it. I love looking at it like this. But, but if we start... In kind of an unusual place, if we start way back in the book of Malachi. So if you don't mind, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Uh, the past, the blank page there, it might say the word New Testament on it. The very next page is going to be the book of Malachi. And it's really interesting. What we have here in the book of Malachi are the last prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, after Malachi... Uh, there are over 400 years of silence, is what we call that. Uh, that is silence as far as God is not speaking through a prophet. There are no angelic visits. And it's actually uh, an era of, of very dark times for the nation of Israel. And there is no voice of God. There are no prophets. There are no prophecies. There are no angelic visits. Over 400 years of silence. But then that silence is broken. And what, what breaks that silence? What does God do to break that silence? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So the last prophecies in the Old Testament uh, come from the book of Malachi. And we're going to emphasize a couple of those today. There's others also in Isaiah and a few scattered out that we'll look at as we go through this series. But Malachi chapter 3, look with me at verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, I, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we covered this just a couple of weeks ago, so I don't have to go in depth. But uh, many times God would choose an individual and that person would be a prophet. We knew they were true prophets. They could be tested if they were true prophets by if what they said would come true. Here we have a prophet who is prophesying about something that is to come in the future. It is a message from God. God speaks through this prophet. And the prophecy is that there is going to be a messenger that is going to come. And that messenger is going to prepare the way before me. Who is this me who is speaking? It is God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in this prophecy, we have one of God's prophets uh, speaking for God, speaking on behalf of God. The Holy Spirit speaks through him and he utters this prophecy. So the last prophecy in the Old Testament has to do with a coming messenger, one that will come before the Lord himself, that will be the Messiah. So that's where we get the, 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 uh, the 
title of this message is The Messenger and the Messiah. And we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks the connection that we have within there. Because there has to be a messenger before there can be a Messiah. And even within this verse, we see something really interesting. Uh, We have, Behold, I send my messenger. That is going to be the messenger that comes before the Messiah. And then we have the next part that says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So even within this, we begin to see really even the incarnation of of God who is coming to dwell with us. He is going to put on flesh, temple in that flesh. He will be present with humanity. But before he comes, the messenger has to arrive first. So what breaks the silence between the Old Testament And the New Testament. Is it the birth of Jesus or is it something else? And that's what we're going to look at in the next few moments. Now, how does Mark put all this together? If you don't mind, we're going to emphasize a lot at the beginning of Luke during this series. But I want to start with the book of Mark because Mark really summarizes things really well in chapter 1. So Matthew, Mark, and then we'll get to Luke. Let's start with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So Mark is going to deliver us the gospel. Of course, we have four gospel accounts in the new testament and they are the story the good news that god has sent the messiah he has sent the savior to earth for salvation of all who trust in him they shall be saved they shall be rescued so so they these gospels unfold the good news they unfold the story of salvation who is of course at the center of the gospel mark chapter 1 verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god this is a great summary verse for the entire book of Mark, really for any of the Gospels. This is going to be the story. It's going to be the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed by God. He is also the Son of God. So Mark begins to give us this story. Look how he begins, though. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is that the breaking of the silence between the Old Testament and New Testament? Or is there something else? Look at verse 2. As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark pulls from several passages here, including Isaiah, including Malachi, and a little bit from Exodus as well. And he pulls prophecies from the Old Testament about the coming messenger. So Mark begins to write the gospel that's going to be about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But what does he do right away? He knows, as well as we should know, and and the Jews in that day knew, that you can't just have a Messiah. The Messiah is not going to be the one that breaks the silence. But there has to be a messenger. If there was a Messiah and there was no messenger, then that was not the right Messiah. So in order to have the Messiah, there has to be the special messenger that comes. So Mark begins his gospel by saying, I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But first, let me tell you this. And he pulls these prophecies out of the Old Testament and says, look, remember, you can't have a Messiah without the messenger. Here's the the, the verses that say the messenger is coming. And then look at verse 4. John appeared. Wow. John appeared. So he builds the story here. I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news of what he accomplishes to bring about salvation of sins. But first, let me establish who the Messiah is by telling you that he had the messenger. The messenger that was prophesied in the Old Testament has come, and his name 
is John. Let's read into this just a little bit in Mark. We're not going to go in depth on Mark today, more in Luke. But I just want you to see how he summarizes this and you can see the importance of it. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What was John doing to prepare the way for the Messiah? Think about this. What was he doing? It was very common in that day and time. uh, If a king was coming to an area that they would send a messenger before the royalty arrived. And it would give the area a chance to present itself uh, to the king. And they would clean up the area. They would clean up the roads. And they would, they would prepare themselves for the coming of the king. So the last prophecy in Malachi kind of takes on the culture the, of what they would do at that time by announcing that, yes, the king is going to come. The Messiah is coming. But first, there's going to be a messenger that God sends ahead of time. So what did John actually do to prepare the way for the king? He actually comes preaching a very tough message. What does he do? Does he tell them you're all good people, you're all awesome people, and you're, you're great and worthy of salvation, and God loves each and every one of you the same, and everything's great, and ali ali oxen free, whoever wants to come on in to heaven, come on. No, it's the opposite. He goes out there and calls them all sinners. He calls them sinners. I mean, imagine, I mean, today even, we can hardly say anything is sin anymore or you're liable to be sued, right? There is no such thing as sin in the world anymore today, it seems. But this is the message that John comes preaching. He says, repent. Look at verse 4. That means change your mind, change your heart. You're going one way, you should be going the other way. He says, repent. Well, who needs to repent? People that have been going the wrong way. He says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. He was calling them sinners and he was preparing the way for salvation by calling them sinners. Was he making this up or were they true sinners? Obviously, they were true sinners, but not just them. All of us, the Bible says of uh, sin, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But until you realize you're a sinner, you don't see the need for a cure, right? Who needs a savior if you're already perfect, if you're already righteous in the eyes of God? So he comes to a people who was already thinking they were right in the eyes of God because of their father Abraham that they were genetically connected to. And he comes and says, no, you're all sinners. Look at verse five. What do the people do? All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming, going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He was preparing the way by calling them sinners. You have sinned against God. They were convicted. They began to confess their sins. They were prepared for the Savior by acknowledging first that they were a sinner. So the messenger has come. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. This will come up later about his unique dress. And wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts. I do have a leather belt around my waist, but I do not wear camel's hair or eat locusts, by the way. I did have some honey this morning for breakfast, but this guy obviously has a unique look. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the announcing the herald has come. The messenger begins to announce the message. Yes, the silence has been broken. The first prophet has now been sent from God in over 400 years. And he opens his mouth and he announces the king is coming. 
The Messiah is coming. Now, Mark is kind of a, uh, kind of you might say, one of the shortest gospels as far as the summarizing of events. But if we turn to Luke, Luke expounds that. He expands this information to show us more details about the breaking of this silence. So turn with me over to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here in, uh, here in Luke, we have more details about the birth, about the breaking of the silence, about this one called John who has come and is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Let's look in verse 5. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, Luke is going back further. Mark just says, here are the prophecies of the Old Testament about the messenger that was coming. John appeared. All right, well, we know there's more to a human just appearing than that. And Luke goes back to tell us more about how John appeared. How does he do that? Well, he goes way back and even tells us who the mom of John the Baptist was, the messenger, and who the dad of John the Baptist was, the messenger that was to come before the Messiah. And so he goes back and tells us who they are. He said there was a priest named Zechariah, and there was also his wife named Elizabeth. Now, this couple would be the couple that would have the, uh, the messenger, that would have the messenger before the Messiah, John the Baptist. Now, it is interesting, very interesting, is look at who his parents actually were. Uh, in order to be a priest, God had actually selected one tribe of Israel that could work as a priest, that could serve as a priest, and that entire tribe was consecrated to be priest. Who was that? It was the Levites, right? So here we have a, a Levitical priest. His name is Zechariah. But also, who was the first priest? Who was the first priest during the time of Moses? When God said, build me a tabernacle, and I'm going to sign a, a one, one priest that would be the high priest. Who was that? And that was Aaron. So Aaron was the high priest originally. Then God appoints uh, an entire uh, uh, tribe, an entire, entire group of people to serve as priest as well. But the first priest was Aaron. Look at who John the Baptist's parents are. Really, really interesting. It's kind of fascinating that the dad is from the Levites, but even his mom is from the lineage of Aaron, the first high priest. Pretty interesting. Look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Very good people who were truly trying to do their best to serve God with all they had. Verse 7, But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So here we have some information that is beginning to build. Uh, we see the mom's name. We see the dad's name. And Luke is great for details. When you study the book of Luke, he is, he is a great historian. He puts in all the time signatures. He lets us know who the king is of the day. He lets us know the parent's name as well. He lets us know that, that Zechariah was a priest. And not just this isn't just mythology, made up stuff. But he actually lets us know that he was a priest. He was in the division, if you look back at verse 5, of Abijah. What in the world is that? All right. Well, the way that th this would work is they would divide all the priests up into to individual divisions. There were 24 divisions that would rotate and take turns serving. And twice a year, for one week at a time, each division would work 
with the sacrificial system, presenting the lambs, presenting the sacrifice, presenting the incense, working with the Holy of Holies, working with the holy place and all that was involved there at the temple. So his division was Abijah. And you say, what's that have to do with anything? What has to do with the great details that are involved in this? This is not made up. This is not mythology. Luke puts all the details in here. So Mark kind of summarizes it, just, hey, John appeared. Luke goes into detail and lets us know, hey, here's his parents. Here's the division he was in. He was serving as a priest. They were great people, but they had no children because, look at verse 7, Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, remember he would serve one week, twice a year, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this was a very big deal. Uh, they were ch- chosen, you might call it kind of like a dice type type structure by lot. And one individual would actually go into uh, right before, if, if you could kind of if, use your imagination, we have the holy place. And behind the holy place, there is the holy of holies. At one time where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, there's a, a curtain that divides. And out here in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the priest would enter in by himself. And other priests were allowed to come in before him. And they would put hot coals over here. And then they would leave. And just one priest would come in and he would pour incense over the hot coals. And this aroma would come up. This was, it was a potent incense. Imagine like an extremely strong uh, essential oils are very popular right now. It's something to that degree, all right? Extremely potent smell, but it would be poured over the hot coals. And it would also cause a cloud to come up. Those that were outside could actually smell the aroma going up. They could sometimes even see the cloud of incense coming out of the holy place. And this signified the prayers of all the people of Israel. And actually, they would gather outside the temple and they would pray. But the way it was all organized and orchestrated was to point to the one high priest that we would eventually have. The one mediator between God and between man. Only one high priest was allowed to go in and represent the people. He would pour the incense and the the aroma would go up and the smoke would go up. It was symbolic that he had represented his people. He was praying for them and the prayers were going up. So this is what Zechariah was doing. It was very rare. Usually they only got to do this once in a lifetime. And this was his chance to do it. All right. So this is taking place. Uh, Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The altar of incense with the hot coals on it that he had just poured the incense on. Now, this is no small matter. Verse 11, the silence is broken. The silence of over 400 years of silence. God has not spoken through a prophet There's been no angelic visit. They haven't heard anything from God. It's just been the the extremely dark time. This pharisaical system has has come up where it's it's not about about faith in God. It's about doing and working and achieving and trying to earn your salvation. And and it's a very dark time spiritually. But all of a sudden, Zechariah goes in. This happens twice a day. It has happened for years and years and years and years and years. People before him, people before him, the Levitical priests before him. This has been going on for a long time. But then, verse 11, Zechariah goes in. All the people are outside waiting 
All right, because they're praying and he's taking their prayers to God, acting as the mediator that points future to our ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. But verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is a big deal. This is extremely huge. All right. Angels were not common. Oftentimes when we we hear certain Bible stories, we kind of group them together in our head and think, oh, everyone got to see angels back then. Why don't we get to see angels anymore? But that's not the case at all. Uh, Zechariah knew no one who had ever seen an angel, uh, no one in his in his granddad, great granddad, great granddad before him. No one had seen an angel. Angels were extremely rare. Even if you look at the whole Bible and all the years it represents, over 1,500 years, you will only find one handful of occasions where angels actually come. Extremely rare. So it's extremely rare, and there's actually no record of anyone seeing an angel except for in the, in the late, latest or earliest time, and as far as he could look back, he could go back to the time of Daniel, around a thousand years earlier, and actually see where Daniel had recorded seeing an angel. So this, he goes in, and you try to imagine, and Luke gives us a lot of details, but a lot of them you kind of have to imagine for yourself how this is going down. But it's an extremely holy moment. He only gets to do this usually once in a lifetime, each high priest, each priest. He goes in, he pours the incense on the hot coals. Instantly the smoke goes up, the aroma goes up, and he is to pray. He is to represent all the people. He is to represent the nation, and he is to pray to God. The smoke is going up, and all of a sudden an angel appears next to him. All alone, one room, and all of a sudden there is an angel next to him. Now, look at verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Uh, just a quick question. In the Bible, what was the most common emotion felt when a human saw an angel? It was fear. It was absolute and utter fear. Why were they so fearful? Why was Zechariah fearful right here? Well, a lot of times uh, our culture has, has totally redepicted and wrongly depicted what angels look like. When I say the word angel right now, uh, some of you immediately picture uh, a little cute and cuddly baby with kind of a diaper on and wings and a bow and arrow or something, kind of like Cupid, all right? Uh, some people imagine a supermodel, all right, or something something beautiful, a beautiful uh, woman. If you think of Christmas tree toppers, all right, you often have this beautiful, you know, blonde-haired and lovely flowing dress angel with these beautiful wings attached to the top of the tree. And, and basically every depiction you can think of that you've ever seen of an angel is nothing like we have in God's Word. So cute and cuddly babies do not instill fear upon me. I don't know about you. And if it's this beautiful supermodel, blonde-haired, beautiful dressed girl that just appears there next to Zechariah, I don't think fear would come upon him either, all right? It would be intrigue, it would be odd, but not fear, not this guttural fear that he has or the others that see the angels in in the New Testament. And, And angels were extremely powerful in and of themselves, but it's also who they represented. They have come directly from God and that their presence causes the, this, this awareness of the sinfulness of the man, that God's messenger has been sent and this, this, this utter awareness of who they are as a creature and the supernatural being has been sent from God himself. But also angels are extremely powerful. If we read in 2 Kings 19.35, just to see a little bit of the power of an angel. 
Uh, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. This is one angel. All right, so not the cute and cuddly diaper-bearing little baby with an arrow, okay? This is an angel. 185,000 men were no match for him in 2 Kings 19.35. Uh, they're extremely powerful, okay? So this is an angel, and this angel has appeared right next to Zechariah. So let's see what goes on here. Let's see what the, what the angel says, because this is it. The silence has been broken 400 silent years, no more. God has now sent a messenger. Well, according to Malachi, what is the message that this angel is going to bring? Well, it would have to do with the messenger, right? So let's see. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the silence is broken. Zechariah is in there by himself. He pours the incense over the hot coals. The cloud goes up and immediately he begins to pray. And he is there to submit uh, the prayers of all the people. And there is, there is a general prayer that the priests pray at that time that they are praying for the redemption, for the salvation of Israel. But also, apparently at this time, it could be immediately, it could be prayers in the past, but he is also praying for a son. But it, it does appear that he is probably not praying for a son at this time. And why is that? Because they were advanced in years, we find out. So they were, his wife was advanced in years. He was older as well. So odds are he was not assuming that he would even have children. But here's what happens. Let's go back and analyze verse 13 through 17 and look at what, what Gabriel says. First off, he says, do not be afraid. Seems like anytime an angel shows up to, to uh, God's people, he has to announce that. I mean, just boom, there's an angel. That's a pretty odd thing. You're in a room by yourself. And there's this angel that is not cute and cuddly, extremely powerful, has come from the presence of God. We expect a bright light as well. We don't really know all the details. But the first thing he has to say is do not bring to be afraid. He brings comfort. Look what, look what else he says. He says, your prayer has been heard. This is really neat. I, I like this. And, and we could preach a whole message on this, emphasizing just these words. Your prayer has been heard. This is really neat. Do you, do, you, do you ever think that God does not hear your prayers? It's just really neat that at, at, immediately Zechariah prays. He's praying and there's an angel right there. God has heard your prayers. I wish we had that happen all the time, right? But this is, this is the confidence that we have as well. 
We know that as a believer, God does hear our prayers. But how comforting is it to, to know that God hears our prayers and to see that he, he hears our prayers immediately? As, if there's millions of people in the world. We're all praying. Do our prayers really get to heaven? Does God really hear ours? Yes, he does. And right here we have an angel who is sent right from God. God hears the prayers. God sends an angel. So do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Um, look at this. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Here, uh, the angel has definitely brought a, a prophecy, something that will come true in the future, to Zechariah. He says, you are going to have a son. I mean, he knows the gender of the baby beforehand. He has come directly from God. God knows all things perfectly at once. He doesn't learn information. He doesn't have to guess how things might turn out in the future. He knows they will have a child. It will be a son, and his name will be John. Look at this. And, and, uh, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Indeed, many did rejoice at his birth. Uh, but also, this is an ongoing uh, rejoicing at John's birth because we're still doing it today. We rejoice at this time of year because our Savior has been born, the Messiah has come. But we also rejoice with the people there, with Zechariah, with Elizabeth, with those who came and celebrated at the birth of the messenger. Because again, if there is no messenger, there is not a true Messiah. So this is an ongoing rejoicing. We rejoice this time of year because the Savior has been born. All right. But we also rejoice because the messenger as well is, has been born. So we rejoice with them. Uh, look at this next uh, statement here from Gabriel. For he will be great before the Lord. Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus' own words. He says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Even the Lord, upon his arrival, looks back and says, John the Baptist is indeed great. And next, he says, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. So the angel announces that Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have the messenger. He is going to be a son. You're going to name him John. And now he says he will be great before the Lord. Now he says you will, he will not drink wine or strong drink. Now this was common uh, in, back in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. Uh, priests, when they were on duty, when it was their turn to serve, were not allowed to have any alcoholic beverage, nothing fermented at all. Also, we see in Numbers uh, 6, verse 4 through 5, that if someone were to take the Nazarite vow, uh, a, a vow of holiness, a vow to, to consecrate yourself for some time, that you were not allowed to drink any alcohol at that time either. So it's really interesting, kind of fascinating, that this messenger has come from God, and one of the messages he has for the parents of John is that you are not to ever allow him, and he is not to ever have any alcohol at all. It is, it is teetotaler, right? not even a sip, not anything at all. And why is this? It's kind of unusual. We, we don't see this really elsewhere in the Scripture, this absolute nothing at all, never in your entire lifetime. And it really goes to show that John's whole life, and this is what we find as we continue reading, even from before he is born all the way till he dies, he is consecrated to serve the Lord. So he is always on duty. He never gets a time off, you might say. This is the messenger. 
His role is to be before the Lord. His whole role is to come as a messenger. His whole life is spent on being a messenger, and alcohol is never to touch his lips at all. He says uh, instead he is to be to be controlled by the Spirit. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5.18. I don't have that up there for you. Just let me read it today. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says something very similar. He will be filled, I'm sorry, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we have a, a similar verse here, over here in Ephesians 5.18. And, and it has to do, this is Ephesians 5.18, uh, we know that, that, of course, if you drink alcohol before 21, then you've broken the law of the land. That would be sin as well. Uh, but we also know to be inebriated at all, uh, to, to catch a buzz, to, to be drunk, whatever that degree is, is sin because you've yielded control of your senses over to something else. So anything that takes control of you like that and, and, and takes control of your life, your thinking, and your abilities. And, and we see also that it's not just a taking control of. Here, even Ephesians 5.18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that leads to debauchery. What is that? It's sinfulness. It is immorality. It is desiring to sin and fulfilling those sins. And, and I, know, I know for myself, and I know for you as well, uh, you've been around those who partake in such a thing and into access, excess. And, and we see that... It causes their inner flesh, their sinfulness, those desires to, to rise to the top. And, and no longer is the spirit in control. Your, your spirit and flesh are always in a battle. I mean, you're always trying to subdue the flesh and press the flesh down and, and push the sinful desires down. But it's like the moment alcohol begins to, to get heavy, it's like the flesh rises up and those desires begin to come out. I've, I've been in a fraternity at one time as I was in college, and I, I remember... Even this one aspect of just not drinking, immediately within one day, I was I arrived on campus and immediately there was a party and everyone was drinking and they said, you know, here, take some. I said, no, I, actually, I don't drink. Uh, why is that? Well, I, I'm just a Christian. It's my beliefs and I just don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, it's a, whatever. You know, I just give them some basic stats at that time. I mean, number one reason for spouse abuse and child abuse and number one reason for teenagers, actually uh, for death for teenagers. And there's just no need in it. And I'd rather not. And, and I mean, within 48 hours, everyone in that fraternity knew that I was a believer and knew that I didn't drink. And for the next four years, that was something that set me apart from from them. But it was always this, this weird thing to watch every weekend as the alcohol began to increase in amongst them, how the sinful desires would increase as well. So we know that obviously drinking to excess, excess catching a buzz, anytime you yield control of your body like this to something uh, that leads to sinfulness, it is wrong. So we, we, we as Christians still apply to a degree some of this. We, we don't need to, of course, uh, sin. We don't need to live a lifestyle of debauchery. So instead, we're filled with the Spirit. We yield control to the Spirit. Here, uh, though John is allowed to never, ever, ever partake of it at all. A complete teetotaler. Why is that? Because it does look like uh, what is happening here is he is drawing from the Levitical priest, the Nazarite vow, that he is his whole life he is going to be consecrated before the Lord, set apart. Everyone will realize there's something different about him. He doesn't even drink, not even at all, ever, never, ever. There's something different about his lifestyle that, that says he is set apart. All right, so, so we carry on here. Let's see what else happens. Um, uh, look at, 
Oh, oh, look at this. I love this. The next portion here. Uh, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And again, this ties in well to one of the reasons where he is not allowed to drink at all. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He is consecrated to be this messenger for life even before he is born. Look at this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb in some mysterious manner. Really incapable of further analysis, the Holy Spirit was already actively present in the soul of this child while it was still in its mother's womb. Uh, we find something similar to this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. Jeremiah says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This was Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. So there is definitely this... this, this uh, consecration of John here, that, that God has, has called him to be the messenger, that he is to be the messenger, but in a unique, special way that there's something very interesting going on here. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And we even catch a little glimpse of this, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but where Mary is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and they meet for the first time. And something very interesting even happens at that moment where, where John is present in his mother's womb. We'll get to that later. It's exciting, though. All right, uh, so we have this, this very unique, unique setting that is taking place here. And then let's look at uh, verse 17 uh, of Luke. Basically, Gabriel summarizes Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. In Malachi, we, had, we went over chapter 3, verse 1. We also have another major prophecy about the coming messenger in chapter 4, verse 5. And I have both those on the screen for you today just to look at and kind of compare them. So again, we have Gabriel, God's messenger, who has come to announce to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they are going to have the messenger. So look what it reads. Let's first look at Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So the last prophecy is... Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now look what Gabriel the angel says here in Luke 1, 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. The messenger was to be like Elijah. And so we have uh, Gabriel, the angel, is basically summarizing these prophecies. He's summarizing Malachi 4, verse 5. And in, in Malachi 4, verse 5, and here in Luke 1, 17, that we see that the messenger is going to be like Elijah in that he will have the same spirit, he will have the same power of Elijah. Not that it's going to be the same exact person, but he is going to be extremely similar. Now, I say that, and earlier over there in the book of Mark, I mentioned uh, John the Baptist's wardrobe. It was quite different, right? Mark says, and John appeared. When he appeared, he began to prophesy. And there was something unique about his bold message that caused people to relate his message to Elijah. 
Elijah was extremely bold with his message. And he was, Elijah was so bold with it that he would even tell kings exactly what God was speaking to him to tell them. He was so bold. John as well. John would later get beheaded. Why? Because he was so bold, he was calling out the king. Now, look at this though also, in the, and I have this one up there for you today, but 2 Kings 1.8 to describe Elijah's wardrobe. It was not, this is not a primitive people where they're walking around like this, even in Elijah's time. To wear a wardrobe of camel's hair is extremely unique. Uh, John the Baptist definitely set himself apart by wearing that. But look what, John, look what Elijah wore. Uh, they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So this is a description that we have in the Old Testament of what Elijah actually wore. And Mark, what does John the Baptist show up wearing when he begins to prophesy? The exact same thing. He is in the wilderness as Elijah was. He is in the same outfit as Elijah had. And he is speaking boldly as a prophet of God. So it's similarity, similarity, similarity. Let's carry on. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old, an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. By the way, I always love to point this out. Notice that Zechariah calls himself old, but he does not call his wife old. She is advanced in years. All right. Note to me in there. Okay. You are old. She is advanced. Just remember that. All right. So then Zechariah said, now, now think about this. The angel has just showed up right there. He announces all of this, announces this prophecy that's about to be fulfilled. And what is Zechariah going to say? The silence has been broken. It's deafening. There's an angel right next to him. He has just prayed. The angel is there. The angel tells him this message. Instead of rejoicing and, and being, he says, look what he says. He says, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? There's an angel. Did you forget that there's an angel right next to you? This is not me telling you these things are going to happen. This is not your best friend Fred down the street that's predicting things that might happen. The angel is right next to you in the holy place. Now, look what, look what he says. I love verse 19. And the angel answered him. This is awesome. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. This is strong. This is powerful. And I like to present and imagine an extremely powerful angel that is next to Zechariah. Not a cute and cuddly baby. Not some blonde-headed girl. But an extremely powerful masculine angel is standing there. I like to imagine a nice deep voice here. Zechariah questions the angel. Yeah, that's nice, but how should I know this is going to happen? How do I know? And it's a questioning of his authority, but it's also questioning the authority of who he's come from. And it's a direct, you might say, a questioning of God. So he says, I am Gabriel. This is big. Uh, the angel has not announced his name until this point. But the moment he says, I am Gabriel, this had to be huge for Zechariah. Because the only time... Uh, he is mentioned. Uh, the only other time he had been mentioned as of late, and it had been nearly a thousand years ago, was in the book of Daniel. Chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Daniel saw Gabriel, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uliah, and it called Gabriel. 
make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Once again, fear. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Anyway, long story short, the moment he says Gabriel, he knows this is big. Uh, There's only two angels that are mentioned in the Bible by name. We have Michael and we have Gabriel. So he says, my name is Gabriel. Look at verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In other words, you you have with your tongue, you have spoken against me. So your tongue is to now be cursed. You will not speak until the child is born because you doubted me. You doubted what God was going to do. So he gets punished here. And we're going to see this in the weeks to come that indeed this is a true punishment. He received this this punishment and he cannot speak at all. He wanted a sign. He demanded a sign. How will I know these things will come? And I just kind of put in my notes there. Here's your sign. All right. Your sign. You need more than me being an angel next to you. You can't speak. How about that? There's your sign. You want a sign? You're not going to speak. And so indeed, that's what happens. We'll look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. This was to be a quick process. The holy place, the holy of holies, the priest would enter in. He would pour the incense. The smoke would go up. The aroma would go up. He would pray. He would come back out, and he would bless all the people. And this was to take a short amount of time. One was because if they stayed in too long, it was such a holy area. They might think a wrong thought. They might think a sinful thought. Something wrong might pop in their head. So it's a pure time of prayer. They come in, they pray, they walk out, they bless the people. But something's taking too long. I mean, this happens all the time. Twice a day, years and years and years and years, something's taking too long. They realize something's odd. Verse 22, And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Imagine the silence is broken. The angel has appeared. He has announced that they are about to have the messenger is about to be born. This means the Messiah is coming. Zechariah is standing before all the people that have gathered there to have their prayers presented to God. He can't do anything. He is making signs, but he doesn't know sign language. Okay, so he's trying to make signs. He doesn't know. And he remains mute. Uh, Look at verse 23. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach amongst women. Now, just a quick summary of where we've gone. 400 years of silence. The silence is broken, not with the birth of Jesus, but with the birth of the messenger. It's the way it had to be. Malachi says the messenger is coming before the Messiah and the silence is broken by announcing that the messenger is coming. We know that his name is to be John. We see his parents here. It is a supernatural birth, not a virgin birth, but it is supernatural in that they cannot have children. One is old, one is too advanced, but God allows them to have a child. And it's supernatural also even in the fact that Zechariah didn't believe him and he is cursed and he will not speak again until the messenger is born. What are we to do with this? We're just po- it, I love this because it, we begin to see how, how grand God is. 
His sovereignty uh, of what He is in control of and that He is in, all-powerful. He is in control of all things. And it causes me, uh, hopefully, hopefully you as well, but an increase in our faith. That we don't have a blind faith. It's not just something we make up. This is not mythology. How do you do something like this? A uh, 400-year-old prophecy comes true exactly as it was supposed to. Uh, we have these prophecies drawn forth from the Old Testament. The messenger will act and behave like this. And sure enough, it happens just like this. And then he announces the Messiah. So we rejoice in the birth of John because he announces the one that is to come. The Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One who will bring our forgiveness. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time to focus in on who the messenger is so that we can understand who the Messiah is. There there would be only one that you would send that would cause the forgiveness of sins, who would pay the price for our sins, who would redeem us, atone for us, pay the price on the cross that would give us his righteousness, take our sins on himself, receive the punishment so that we indeed could be saved. As Mark said, this is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But John appeared, and John appeared to announce that Messiah so we would all know who he is. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.